From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, February 11th. The northern skies of the Navajo Nation are clearer after the closure of the coal-powered Navajo Generating Station. But the region lost jobs and tax revenue. A proposed pumped storage hydropower plant that uses the generating station's transmission lines could bring back revenue and thousands of jobs. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission issued a preliminary permit for the project last year. But it's still early days. Justin Higginbottom reports on the legacy of coal-fired power on the Navajo Nation and what comes next. Nicole Horse Herders from Black Mesa, on the Arizona side of the Navajo Nation. And she says a couple decades ago, her community noticed that their springs and seeps were drying up. Well, we know that the mining company on Black Mesa was tapped into one of the deep aquifers. And that deep aquifer just so happened to be the only potable source of water for people on Black Mesa. That mine pumped the aquifer to slurry coal to the Mojave Generating Station. Horse herder founded Tone Jonane, which translates to Sacred Water Speaks in Dene. Their goal was to close the mine, running her community dry. But that wasn't the only coal-powered plant using water in the region. Just west, the same company ran the Kayenta coal mine, feeding the Navajo generating station. In order to protect the water and to ensure that it was going to be viable into the future, we had to put an end to the coal mining. The Mojave Generating Station closed in 2005 after officials found it violated the Clean Air Act. So did the mine in Black Mesa. In 2019, the Navajo Generating Station shuttered along with its Kayenta mine. Pressure from environmental groups helped, but the coal-fired plant was also just not as profitable. The next year, its stacks were demolished. That's from footage of the demolition. It brought spectators from around the region. Once the Navajo generating station shut down, then we were able to turn our efforts to transition issues. Most important to horse herders, what to do with the transmission lines left from the Navajo generating station. But we jumped on it right away because we knew that the window of opportunity is small. Those lines transported electricity from the plant to cities outside of the Navajo Nation, like Phoenix and Las Vegas. But Horse Herder wants the lines used differently. And putting renewable energy on those transmission lines rather than more coal or some other fossil fuel industry. Jim Day is the CEO of Daybreak, and he has an idea. The Navajo Energy Storage Station, it's a really big project. It's 2,210 megawatts installed capacity of 10-hour duration storage. In terms of power, that's bigger than most nuclear power plants. The $3.6 billion project is what's called pumped storage hydropower. It would store power by pumping water from Lake Powell to a proposed reservoir near Navajo Mountain in Utah. So it uses abundant solar power in the daytime, pump the water up at huge quantities, and then as the sun starts to go down and power demand goes up and solar starts falling off, it releases the water back through generating turbines. Those turbines can then release power when needed. Day says that storing energy is important when using renewable sources like solar or wind, which don't generate electricity uniformly. When the wind's blowing, we could suck it all up. When the sun's blazing hot, 
we could take a lot of that power off their hands and then deliver it when the, the grid needs it. It's still extremely early days for the project, but Day says it has the chance at providing thousands of jobs and millions in revenue. He says he has brought the idea to the Navajo Nation. I want them to be partners. That's the whole point of this project is to benefit them. Mike Eisenfeld of the San Juan Citizens Alliance advocates for a transition to renewable energy in the region. He's seen several pump storage projects proposed, but he has questions. Where's the power going? Who benefits? Is it going to be for the Navajo Nation? Is it going to provide power for local communities? Or is it going to be thing that is sort of set up for California? It was common for those on the Navajo Nation to be in view of power plants like the Navajo Generating Station, but have no electricity in their own homes. Well, what about the projects that could stand on their own merits? Why are we keep investing in these speculative projects when we know that we could be building renewable energy projects that would have a meaningful impact on local communities. For horse herders, she hopes a transition from fossil fuels also changes how business is done. There has to be a change in the way that corporations and utilities do business anywhere in this nation, in any community. She thinks that whatever replaces coal should help those closest to it. And communities should hold some power in how they generate power. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. This story is part of a collaborative reporting project with Rocky Mountain Community Radio, looking at fossil fuel transitions in the West. Students at Durango, Colorado's Fort Lewis College are experiencing a different approach to learning about climate change. Sarah Flower, with our partners at KDUR, has more. This is my dream course. This is my dream course because it's the course, the only course I teach. It's about the what could be for science rather than the fundamentals and the building blocks and making sure that you have the skills that you need. Dr. Heidi Stelzer is a professor of environment and sustainability and biology at Fort Lewis College. This semester, she's teaching a course on science values and environmental leadership, an upper division level class that takes a different, more solutions-oriented approach to science. This includes examining the ecological effects of climate change and exploring alternative energy systems that move us away from fossil fuels. For Stelzer, teaching about what could be to future environmental leaders is just as important, if not more, than the basics of these subjects. It's recognizing where and how much more learning comes from asking questions and where I can pop in fundamentals, but we're not dominated by fundamentals. There's still so much about the basic biology that we will cover, but we'll cover it through story, we'll cover it through questions. Uh, why, does, yeah. Yeah. why does the sun shine? Why does the ocean currents flow? Why is there wind? In the first week of class for the spring semester, roughly 20 students filled the classroom as small breakout groups were formed to discuss what the current role is for scientists and science in society today. Ashley Jorgensen is a senior majoring in environmental sciences at the college. Jorgensen says scientists' biggest role is to make a difference especially when it comes to fossil fuels. We have the technology there to make changes. Like my first thought was like energy sources and like solar panels have so much potential, but they're not being implemented anywhere. And so I think that's on a policy level for sure because individuals 
can take action, and I think it's a mix of both. Jorgensen says she appreciates the more philosophical approach to science and recognizes her role as a future environmental leader. Although looking ahead, Jorgensen feels that making those critical changes about fossil fuels on a policy level is our best hope. But for Stelzer, working and learning from the students' ideas is what helps her become a better professor and a scientist that can create change. I learn as much, if not more, from students than anything I've ever taught them. And so when I hear that phrase, teaching solutions, I think if we can grow out of the space of what we see as the norm and, and sort of our first thought about what teaching is and recognize it's a community thing because I have my biases, you have your biases, we all, all have those experiences that have influenced us for better and for worse and where and how do we step into a space where we're open to hearing how would you solve something? Tools do you want? What ideas matter? Who do you see is important? So we all have to be part of that teaching, learning, growing, thinking space. This course's theoretical approach is just one of many in how education will play a crucial role in transitioning away from fossil fuels as they educate a new generation of environmental leaders. I'm Sarah Flower. This story comes from our partners at KDUR in Durango, Colorado. And now, the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Local internet provider Emory Telcom plans to raise rates in Grand and San Juan counties as they install high-performing fiber. Sophia Fisher from the Times Independent has more from their coverage. Yes, so Emory Telecom, uh, I think we wrote about this back in December. They're actually working to, right now they have this copper uh, internet system in southeastern Utah throughout Grand County and San Juan County. Mm-hmm. And they're working to replace that with fiber, which is a lot higher performing. It does so much better in the rapid temperature swings that Moab sees. Um, but as that happens over the next couple of years throughout Grand County, internet rates are going to rise. For people who have Emory Telecom, I should mention that, you know, not every Moabite does use Emory Telecom. There are a few other internet providers. Mm-hmm. But I know Emory does have about 4,000 customers thereabouts in Grand County. So if you consider each customer being a household, that is quite a high percentage of the county. And you say in this article that the increase is going to happen over the next few years, sort of home by home, like as fiber is installed in certain neighborhoods, and then like those customers, those Emory customers would see that increase. Exactly. And I I spoke with uh, Jared Anderson, uh, the chief operating officer for Emory Telecom, and he told me that the rates, first of all, they're already, the new rates are already on the website. And Mm -hmm. he says that Emory Telecom has been working to send letters to households. They want to hold community meetings, maybe put advertisements in local media. He was actually asking me what more he could do to reach out to the community because he wants Mm -hmm. to make sure that everybody knows about this well in advance of seeing the increase on their bills. have some people in Grand and San Juan County already seen that increase? Yes, I know that some people in Grand County do already have fiber. And he says that he thinks that the denser parts of Grand and San Juan counties should see it definitely by the end of 2024. Some of the farther flung areas in this county might not see it till 2026. Mm -hmm. But it is done. I know that the installation of fiber does require someone, an employee of Emory Telecom, to enter someone's household. Uh, So there's already that sort of person-to-person individualized contact. Okay. So that'll also provide like another communication method to get the information out about the rates. You do say in the article that the internet plans, Emory's current plan, 
plans are about anywhere from $35 to $65, and those will jump to anywhere from $50 to $80. Correct. So every single plan will jump by $15. So if I have a $35 plan, it'll jump to $50. That's correct. And one other thing that Jared Anderson actually mentioned to me, he said that oftentimes customers are are paying for more data than they actually need. So he said that when representatives from Emory Telecom come to install the fiber, oftentimes they'll try to figure out exactly how much data that household is using and Mm. potentially recommend dropping down a plan. And since the plans themselves are $10 apart, that would only result in a $5 net increase if you were to drop a plan. I don't know if people know how much data they're using, but you could always consider trying to pay for a little less. Well, thank you, Sophia. And where do you want to take us next? Um, let's talk about Thompson Springs. Yes. So Thompson Springs looking at water options. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the community is currently in a 40% water deficit. And it's important to note that that doesn't mean that there, you know, water isn't coming out of the taps anymore or anything like that. But there are state standards, essentially, for how much water a community has to have for each individual Mm -hmm. user. And right now, Thompson is not hitting that. So they need to legally, they need to rectify that situation. And then if they want growth, if they want more development, they need to find more water. Uh, So they're looking at two solutions. The first one is right now they're only drawing water from a single spring. They're actually applying, however, to be able to draw water from another spring. They've submitted the permit application to the Bureau of Land Management. And according to John Ripley Corkery, who's the chair of the Thompson Special Service Water District Board, he's hoping that'll go through within the next year or two. Uh, But longer term, there's kind of a, a more dramatic proposal to pipe in water from the Green River. Okay, you just explained that there are two solutions on the table. One is the short term. The second from the Green River is the long term. And this is kind of contingent on the UMTRA tailings project finishing. It's interesting. So there's, yeah, UMTRA, as people may know, UMTRA is transporting mill tailings from just outside of Moab, uh, miles north to Crescent Junction, which is around where 191 hits Interstate 70. There's a Mm. little disposal cell. And they already actually have a pipeline coming 22 miles from the Green River to spray down those tailings to prevent dust from, you know, picking them up and dispersing Mm. the tailings, you know, into people's lungs, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, ideally, what John Corkery told me is that if UMTRA could give that 22-mile pipeline and their permanent water right to Thompson Springs, it would be a huge, I mean, the infrastructure would largely already be in place. There are a few other things they have to do, like, you know, extend the pipeline another Mm -hmm. six miles, but it'd be very easy. And actually, in fact, if UMTRA were to give it as a gift rather than selling it, the state of Utah would consider that the basis for matched grant funding, which could potentially fund the entire thing. So the talks here are very preliminary. Any thoughts from Grand County's commissioners on this this plan? Yeah, absolutely. I think they all seemed, there was some interesting discussion. Many of them seemed in favor of at least writing a letter of support for these water rights. And there seemed to be general support for exploring this possibility. Mm-hmm. The commission did briefly touch on, you know, if we do get this pipeline and this water right, what would Thompson Springs look like? Because mm-hmm. this could open up the potential for major growth. So there mm-hmm. was, they decided to to table that discussion a little bit and and acknowledged that that had to be a broader community discussion. Mm -hmm. You have to involve the planning and zoning department and create vision statements and all that. But there was definitely talk of, you know, and hope for creating affordable housing potentially Mm. in the future. The town has about 40 residents and, you know, having a a pipeline like that could potentially expand its capacity to hundreds. Hundreds. Which would completely transform Thompson and potentially this area. Mm. Anything else that you feel is worth mentioning 
in today's TI. Oh, yeah. Um, Ashley Bunton wrote a great story for us this week about a potential new housing occupancy requirement that's going through Moab City government right now. Uh, that would require, for certain residential zones within the city, it would re- require a certain percentage of residential units to be occupied by people who live and work mm-hmm. in Moab full time. Corey Shirtleff, who is uh, Moab City's new planning director, he was talking about this recent trend, which I think we've all seen in the mm-hmm. city and, and in the county more broadly as well recently, of developers oftentimes buying up lots that are right now being used for primary residential housing. A mm-hmm. lot of these have been trailer courts, you know, over sure. the last few months. and tearing them out, evicting residents, and replacing them with townhomes that are much more expensive than what almost any, you know, Moab City resident could afford. Uh, And I think this is an attempt to at least try to mitigate some of those impacts by retaining a higher percentage of, of housing for essential employees and residents of Moab. Now, like you said, this is something that the city council is considering. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have like a drafted ordinance yet? Do we know like details of what this could look like? Yeah, so the resolution has been drafted. Uh, it does have to be approved by the city within 180 days. Uh, and that, you know, the time is ticking on that, Ashley reported as it was crafted uh, late last year. Mm. Um, and there are still questions, I think, about how this would be enforced, potentially, mm-hmm. which has not, as far as I know, been discussed publicly. But that has been a concern raised by, you know, a few members of the community. How can you tell if somebody lives here full time and works here? It sounds like the city has to make sure that it's a really tight ordinance before they approve it and that there is like a clear path to, you know, having someone be identified as a, as a local who is part of our workforce. Exactly. I think it's really exciting and I, it's, it's quite obvious that there's a need for this. It's just a matter of hopefully crafting an ordinance that's going to work and going to be enforceable. Sophia Fisher, staff writer at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Local artists are looking to the world of blockchain technology to sell their original digital works. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News has more on this local connection to non-fungible tokens, more commonly known as NFTs. We've been hearing a lot about them. I think like they're really taking off and also they're super polarizing. Like people are either really for NFTs or they like really don't get it and really hate them. So an NFT is a non-fungible token. It's very similar to like like a rare baseball card mm. or like an original oil painting. Mm. Um, the whole purpose of this thing is that there's only one of it in the world. And so if there's only one thing, then obviously it has a really high monetary value because it's really rare. But it's not a physical object. Right. And so that is what is so maddening to people who are not in the NFTs is that they just look like images. Yeah. And they are images, like they're digital assets. Um, so they're images or GIFs, um, but they're not actually files. Mm-hmm. When you buy an NFT, you're not buying a JPEG file. You're basically okay. buying a couple of lines of code that live in a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and those lines of code will say that you own this thing. Okay, so it can't be like copied? Right. So, I mean, the image itself can be copied. Like, mm-hmm. you can take a screenshot. Sure. Um, I mean, the artists who I talk to, like, they regularly post these images on their social media accounts, mm-hmm. and they sent me the images to post with this article. But there's no harm in doing that because those images are not 
the NFTs. Okay. The NFTs are the specific like lines of code uh-huh. that exist in the blockchain that have this ownership stamp, basically. You know, I think you've actually described this to me before as like owning an original piece of art. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you buy an NFT that is intended to be art, and I talk to artists who are making NFTs that are intended to be art. Yeah, it's very similar to owning a painting. I mean, you can go to a museum and take a photo of a painting and no matter how good that photo is even if you print it out on your wall even if you use the photo to Uh paint your own version of the painting it will never be the original Um, and so that is kind of the concept that these artists in Moab are looking into is that they're making these NFTs that are intended to be art and they're original works so when you're a digital artist I mean that's really beneficial for you because Both of these artists, I talked to Joey Howell Mm -hmm. and Holly Zollinger, Um, they both sell their art like in Moab Made. I mean, you can buy prints of these things, um, but a print is like 20 bucks. Hmm. And these NFTs that they're selling are worth hundreds. Wow. Um, Which makes sense. I mean, I think that digital artists should be able to sell their original works for as much as like a painter could sell their original work. Now, so we have, as you just explained, um, artists, local artists who are getting into this world of NFTs. Mm -hmm. Did they talk about like how they started doing it and why? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So NFTs have been getting really popular lately. um, And what kind of kicked that off was when this digital artist um, known as Beeple sold one of his pieces as an NFT at a Christie's auction. And it sold for um, $69.3 million, (laughs) which is like a record selling Uh piece of art. And Uh so then people really started paying attention to NFTs. And also they were acknowledged by an art auction that Mm. they are art. Mm -hmm. Um, And so both Howell and Zollinger kind of got interested at the urging of a friend um, and They both were like not super into the idea at first, but Mm. just kind of following the popularity and Mm. how easy it is to make Uh an NFT. um, They both tried it and they've both been finding a lot of success. So Joey listed a handful of NFTs a few months ago on OpenSea, which is a marketplace that uses a cryptocurrency called Ether. Um, And since then, he's sold 20 NFTs for the equivalent of 2.8 Ether, which right now is equivalent to almost $9,000. Okay, so like this is a, at least at this current moment, is a revenue stream for local artists. Yeah, super lucrative. Um, And also what I found really interesting about this story is that it's allowing Joey and Holly to access this greater art community. Mm. Um, And I mean, Moab is super well known for its artist community here. Mm. Like there are so many artists and everything, but it's still a very rural community. um, And it's really hard to tap into the worldwide art community. But NFTs are a way to do that. You know, when you purchase an NFT, Mm because, you know, having that beautiful analogy of it being like an original painting or original work of art, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the point of pride might be to like hang it in your home. Right. So tell me about that process for an NFT. Yeah. So um, Joey was actually telling me that the first NFT he ever sold um, is this really beautiful piece of art. It's called um, The Nature of Life, and it's Mm -hmm. kind of depicting this, like, desert transitioning into ocean. Um, And he sold it for almost $1,500. And so he offered to the buyer to make a print of it, and they weren't interested. It's kind of like, 
yes, this is a piece of right. art, but also that's not really the point of an NFT. Mm. Um, and so the point of buying them is kind of twofold. Like, yeah. first of all, you're buying a piece of art. Um, but second of all, you're buying this piece of something that's worth cryptocurrency mm. and that is almost like a stock. Like mm. the monetary value of it will go up or down depending on how popular the artist gets. So how like fascinated did you get with this subject as you were so, writing? So, so fascinated. <laughs> also, the thing about trying to figure uh-huh. out what an NFT is, is that every single description that you read has a new word that you then have to read another description sure. for, like blockchain and cryptocurrency. Sure. Yeah, so I definitely went down the rabbit hole with this. Wow. <laughs> well, I could ask you questions about this for hours, but let's no. move on. <laughs> let's go to what's going on with this garden in the library. Yeah, so the Grand County Public Library boardroom is the location of a new hydroponic garden. Basically, they got this funding through an ARPA grant um, through the Utah State Library Division, which is funding multiple hydroponic gardens throughout the state to help kids learn about growing food. Mm. Um, Yeah, so hydroponic systems are super cool. Um, I know a lot of people who are actually like deeply into them. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, a hydroponic system allows you to grow plants without soil. Mm. It's just like nutrients and water. So you can make them in pretty much anything. So the library has six different systems. Wow. Um, the lowest level is like almost like a yogurt container. Okay. Like, um, but then the highest level is this three-tiered hydroponic system that can hold 200 pounds of vegetables. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really cool. And the library kind of had this natural partnership with the Youth Garden Project um, because teaching kids about growing food mm-hmm. is their whole mission. Mm-hmm. So the library and the Youth Garden Project created this after-school program with the Beacon After School program. So they have eight kids who are growing food in the garden right now, um, and they're growing arugula, basil, cabbage, lettuce, and cilantro. So this is a Beacon After School club, and they come to the library and tend to the hydroponic garden. Mm-hmm. And you said it's in the board's meeting room. Can anyone, you know, look at the garden or, you know, when it's open? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, both Carrie Valdez and Aaron Vick, who I talked to, Carrie's the library director, and Aaron works at the Youth Garden Project. Yeah, they both said that this garden is open to anyone to come check it out. Um, I did. It's really cool. It kind of casts this like bright pink light Mm. in the room because of the grow lights. And Erin said that the crops can be harvested in as little as four to six weeks because they'll kind of be similar to like microgreens. Okay. Um, And then at the end of the program, each student will build their own system to take home. Very neat. Another, like, amazing thing about our local library. I know. I love our library so much. (laughs) And finally, Ali, if I could, let's talk pickleball. Yes. Um, So at the regular city council meeting on February 8th, uh, most of the citizens to be heard who came to the meeting wanted to talk about pickleball courts. Okay. So um, two weeks ago, the city council passed a motion to pursue construction of new pickleball courts at Old City Park. So a year ago, the Parks and Recreation Department received a grant that would fund the creation of new courts. And so for the past year, they've been deciding where to build these courts. Um, and the grant came with like a couple requirements. Like it had to be city-owned property, Um, And also there would be something similar to a fee if Mm. the courts were destroyed. And so this location had to be like permanent. Permanent. Like never could be moved. Right. So ultimately the Parks and Rec Department got 
down to deciding between building the courts at Swanee City Park or Old City Park. And Old City Park was chosen because it was determined to have less residential impact considering how noisy pickleball can be. Mm. Um, And if you want to go back and listen, they talked about the decision to do these courts at Old City Park um, at the meeting on January 25th. So this decision was made to pursue construction. But then a lot of the residents who live near Old City Park came to express their opposition of the location of the courts. And a lot of them were saying they're not opposed to the sport of pickleball. Mm -hmm. They're opposed to the noise that it generates. Sure. The noise, I mean, pickleball is known for its noise, and um, that is the struggle to figure Mm -hmm. out where to put courts. And the pickleball players came and said, you know, they want to use these new courts to host tournaments, um, to bring more people in. And they also said they've been waiting a really long time for courts. Yeah, pickleball players currently play on the high school tennis courts they play at the center street gym and like you said they like wanna have dedicated courts for tournaments Mm -hmm. did the city council have any comments or any indication that they were gonna revisit that location yeah so on tuesday and wednesday next week the city and local pickleball players will host noise demonstrations um, so on Tuesday, the players will be at Old City Park at noon, and on Wednesday, they'll be at the high school tennis courts at noon. Um, and Joette, or Mayor, um, she encouraged the residents to attend, and then she also said that um, the city council still has to approve funding for the right. project. Mm-hmm. So this will come before the council again. And right. the, um, I'm assuming that if there's this much pushback from residents about this location, that the city council will not choose to fund it. I know that people have brought up, what is the deal with the county? Like, are there county sites that could work better? Yeah, people are definitely questioning, like, why does it have to be at these Uh two parks? I think people would love to see what other sites were being considered. Allison Harford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.